Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. The MIT Technology Review's recent design issue opened with a short essay that I really liked called Why the Definition of Design Might Need a Change. The essay goes that the Latin root for the word design conveyed a much wider set of meanings than what we might think, ranging from tracing and drawing to things like organization and strategy. Over the years, however, the word of design was reduced to simply mean drawing. So today, when we talk about design's expanding definitions, what we're really saying is that we're returning to design's original definition. To recapture design in the original sense, the essay goes, is not just the search for a more beautiful shape, but the shaping of a more beautiful and sustainable world. That essay was written by a designer and thinker I've been following for years and someone whose career embodies this expanded original definition of design, Nicholas DiMancio. Nicholas is currently professor and head of architecture at MIT and previously was professor of architecture and urban design and Craigslist Distinguished Chair in New Media at UC Berkeley, where he also served as director of the Berkeley Center for New Media. With his partner, Catherine Mole, he runs Modem, which is a studio that uses architectural tools, codes, and crafted artifacts to explore improbable narratives for urban situations and ecologies. I first started following Nicholas's work after his 2011 book, Space Suit, Fashioning Apollo, which is this really wide-ranging look at the design and construction of the Apollo spacesuit that is also this meditation on design, on process, and complexity. As you can see, Nicholas's work moves across teaching and design, writing, software development, urban planning, and I was really curious to talk to him about how he thinks about all of this. Using his MIT Technology Review essay as our starting point, we talk about how he thinks about design and what it means to teach design today. We talk about his own career across multiple disciplines and dig into the writing of Spacesuit and how he thinks about that as a design project too. If you liked this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts of every episode, an exclusive monthly newsletter, all while helping to keep this show free for everyone. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up. Thanks for listening. And here is my conversation with Nicholas DiMancio. You know, I actually want to start with a short essay that you wrote for the MIT Technology Review back at the beginning mm -hmm. of the year for their design issue called Why the Definition of Design Might Need to Change Might Need a Change. And in that in that essay, you sort of look at the history of the word design and you talk about sort of like the Latin roots uh, of this word had a had a sort of very broad mandate. It could mean you, you talk about it meaning things like um, 
like kind of literal, you know, material like tracing activities. You talk about it like, um, you know, tactical is in to achieve a goal, organizational is in sort of setting a strategic designation. And that over the years, this has sort of um, been whittled down to mean something specific. And in some way, we need to sort of go back to this larger view. Can you tell me a little bit about that history and why why you think we are in a moment where that we need to sort of think about these new definitions of this word design? Would be a pleasure. Um, so, you know, as, as always, the, uh, the writer never writes the headline. So, <laughs> uh, the, you know, my, I, I think that, that essay can actually be best understood as saying design has a really good definition, but we're not using it. <laughs> yes, say, I, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, not as good a headline, but I think you're right. 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 Um, uh, and so uh, I think that the, you know, because as I outline, you know, um, at slightly greater length in that in that article, the, the article, by the way, was the result of um, uh, a dear friend, Alison Arif, who mm-hmm. uh, is a longtime um, friend and, and collaborator from the Bay Area, right. uh, recently become um you know, marvelously, the editor of the Technology Review print edition, which is one of the great, you know, uh, yeah. uh, surviving um, uh, magazine and, and um, uh, occasionally design and certainly technology journalistic outlets out there. And um, uh, and Allison said, oh, we're doing this design issue. Can you just, you know, write something for the beginning that defines design? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, no big and- deal. And um, for various reasons to do with, in fact, our efforts to expand design education across MIT, which I can get into later, uh, I said, sure, this would be, you know, that is a very, very difficult thing to do, but uh, I I think it will be time well spent trying to do it. And so as I thought about it, I realized that 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 a lot of what is happening today in larger conversations around design and design education and its expansion, um, uh, I'll put in, you know, scare quotes to mm-hmm. other realms of, um, uh, of making and doing things beyond traditional design practice is best understood, not, uh, uh, as I write, as a kind of, uh, uh, taking of the hammer from the design practitioner and using it to, you know, bash down lots of nails outside of the traditional outlines of design, but rather to say that we have this history of this amazing word design, which meant um, when it was first coined, um, so many different things about thinking in a fundamental way about the world and the arrangement and relationships between things in it, in a, in a, in a deep and fundamental sense, uh, and then acting on those um, uh, in a deliberate way. And then uh, that included, you know, arranging marks on a page. Um, uh, but then a, a shift happened in the way design uh, design's role in society and the economy that I trace in the article when um, suddenly the designer uh, became the person making marks on the page, uh, basically organizing a process, particularly of the creation of uh, originally buildings, but then, of course, consumer objects, um, uh, tracing it back as far as people like Josiah Wedgwood, um, and the the complicity of um, uh, of design as a as a word and as a practice of delineation with that particular mode of thinking about right. and arranging things in the world fundamentally has taken a 
taken um, uh, over all the others such that um, you know you can have an idea uh, uh, happen in the last uh, uh, decade or two like quote unquote design thinking which basically yeah. says like hey let's take this practice of, of, of drawing <laughs> and right. making graphic relationships and and use it you know in this radical way to think about re- rearranging things in the world as a whole when in fact that's what you know, right, you know right. no knock against the the design thinking people but but that's sort of what it was all along and and um you know it is sort of bringing calls to newcastle to say let's you know take uh, ideas about design which are present and inherent to the practice of thinking about things graphically and drawing as a discipline but but the, uh, uh but design is so much more than that and you know there's a lot to be said about the agency of the relationship between building up relationships and representation of, of things graphically in order to understand and rearrange them in the world. Um, but that is inherent to the idea of design and uh, uh, those two activities are intrinsically sympathetic. I wanted to hear you sort of talk about that first because I think in many ways that uh, is a nice way to think about your work and it's also a nice way to think about the work that you're doing at MIT. And I love that you brought up sort of the way you're trying to think about design education at MIT, which is sort of where I wanted to take this conversation next because I'm interested in, you know, when we when we think about design sort of historically like this in this sort of expanded mode, can you talk a little bit about how that changes or shifts how we think about what we teach current design students or how you're sort of thinking about that as, as head of architecture at MIT? Well, I think one of the most um, fundamental pieces of it has to do with where we are now historically and ecologically, um, uh, or th- at least this is for me how it's very much grounded. I think much of our contemporary culture around design is tied up very deeply with a mode of um, extraction of resources and mm. uh, production of uh, of new things with the creation of you know endless piles of stuff that yeah. is uh, uh, you know both in the ecological sense and in the economic sense and in the social sense unsustainable. Uh, at the same time, uh, in a world of increasingly constrained resources, we face unprecedented challenges in terms of both the contribution of the built environment and other sectors of, of what designers touch to uh, uh, the climate crisis as we're experiencing it, and then also to the vulnerability of particularly cities and communities to its effects. And so in that context, every action um, becomes a, a kind of set of strategic thinking about constrained resources, you know, reminiscent of the last five minutes of an episode of MacGyver, as I date myself. Um, <laughs> but that is design in a, in a fundamental sense, in the broad sense that I introduced it in that article and we've, we've discussed. And therefore, yeah. in that sense, you know, every education has to become a design education. And mm. we as uh, design practitioners have to have both a lot of pride in the way in which at the core of many of our practices are, are key insights to such a mode of education, but also a lot of humility, which is to say that there's a lot everywhere else in the world that that relates, especially if we accept an expanded notion of design that in some sense originates um, uh, around our practice, but but is certainly not confined to it. And therefore, um, the you know what that amounts to at a, at a place as uh, 
well, I'd say, you know, certainly influential as, as and, and impactful is the word I'm looking for, as a place as mm, impactful yeah. at MIT, um, uh, is to ensure that every MIT student is in some sense a design student, because every MIT mm. student is going out into the world and will play some sort of instrumental role, we hope, in the reshaping of society and our economy and our relationship to the natural world that simply has to take place at this moment in history. And so how we do that um, becomes itself a design problem on the body right. of the uh, organizational body of the university. I actually really like the way that you phrase that because it sort of echoes back to that earlier um, idea that you were talking about of sort of, you know, design. I, I forget the exact phrase you use, design hammering the nails of other disciplines or something like that. And I think, you know, there's this idea of, you know, if we talk about like expanding also to use quotes design that that is somehow colonizing in some way and mm -hmm. what you're talking about is giving giving every student the tools of design not to colonize but to uh i don't know democratize you know to 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 give this way of thinking to different kind of you know students across across the school how does that change what it means to be an architecture student that you know to like go back to the the core or to the department mm -hmm. um if every student is getting a design education what does an architecture student and i'm not that sounds oh no it's know, a, critical it's really, but i'm curious sort of how you then think about you know those definitions it's a really good question jared i think that the in the context of um well i'm going to answer the question as um uh you know at, at my general starting point which is historically so yeah. uh one of the things that you know the, the the that's been interesting about coming to mit is its extended history. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's the as the first. Uh, certainly, we graduated the first professional architecture student in uh, in North America. Although props to the University of Illinois at Champaign Urbana, which was essentially doing the same thing at the same time. So I'm not going to get into that fight. <laughs> but, the, um, uh, but certainly, you know, the the often credited as the first or one of the first architecture programs in North America, and one of um, uh, one of the four original departments of MIT, um, uh, albeit added at the very last minute. And so the the notion of uh, one of the things that it's been a pleasure to help my colleagues understand uh, at MIT, uh, across MIT, is how much fundamental ideas of architectural education, like the studio or a set of, mm -hmm. uh, of uh, uh, practitioners from different disciplines coming together around the student's work as a site of encounter versus, say, the lecture hall. These are very fundamental ideas now to uh, all of MIT, which operates in this very sort of creative and um, uh, kind of hacking-oriented way, which to some you know large degree emerges from the DNA of the development of design culture and design education at MIT across that long history. So I think that the the at its very best architectural education that deals with some of the most intractable design problems like existing site conditions, like complex programs, the ability of building to change over time, um, as we're now trying to particularly conceive of at MIT, not necessarily as assuming that every design problem is a building made from scratch on an empty site with a program that says fix over time, doing away with some of these fictions right. of design ed uh, uh, education that out of that particularly intractable and interesting, but very physically manifest set of uh, 
uh, set of problems comes a particularly um, creative approach to thinking about the built environment and products as a whole that will always um, uh, expand um, uh, intellectually and and even um, in the case of MIT, if you trace the in, uh, institutional history, throw off other necessary institutions from, uh, mm. for example, the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, um, which spun out of the uh, architecture program in 1954, to the Media Lab, which emerged right. In large part from the architecture program in 1985 to um, a, a new institution which I haven't uh, mentioned yet, the Morningside Academy for Design right. or MAD, which we've recently launched, um, you know, in, in large part and in collaboration with the architecture department to um, advance design education across all of MIT. And so, institutionally and historically, you can see architectural practice as a uh, not the only but certainly a really instrumental site for uh, strategic developing strategic and critical thinking about design in a way which unlike other quote-unquote design disciplines in that potted history that I outlined at the beginning uh, uh, almost inherently never starts with a blank page and never starts with unconstrained resources and therefore i think is a particularly rich place at its best to to think about what design is fundamentally as well i think that's so interesting and i'm really interested in this idea of of the way you just said the sort of the fictions of architecture education that we have lived with for a while i i'm sort of you know admittedly less familiar with the history of architecture education but when i look at the history of, of my field graphic design education i see this sort of um you know there's like constantly new things that are being tacked on to what it means to be a graphic designer and what a graphic design student needs to learn, you know, if you're an undergrad in, in four years. And so, you know, for a long time, it was it was formal. It was the rules of typography, the rules of grids, how to, you know, lead an eye around a page or around a screen. Uh, and, th and then there was, you know, then there's sort of, you know, additions uh, of theory and semiotics and, um, you know, sort of identity and, and sort of layers of meaning. And now there's, you know, sort of, you know, questions of service design, user experience, um, interactivity, and all, and all of those are great, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it's this sort of scaffolding that just, you know, has more and more sort of added on to it. And I'm constantly thinking about like, what do we keep and what do we move away from? Because we can't, you know, we can't just sort of keep adding things on. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, do, do students need to know the difference between an N dash and an M dash anymore? Like, does that, you know, does that still matter? And I'm wondering how you think about that in, in an architecture context where it is no longer just, uh, you know, this fiction of you build a new building, but you're dealing with pre-existing sites, the climate change, et cetera, et cetera. How do you sort of think about like what what is still needed? What can we sort of set aside? What are we adding on? How do you think about that that evolution? I guess I'll answer the the question in a couple of ways. One, at the at the most basic level, there's a key skill at the core of a design education, which involves being exposed to just enough complexity or being able to digest an even more complex situation into a manageable level of complexity and then be able to represent it to yourself in ways that you have insights about it 
and can organize the situation um, uh, for the benefit of and in collaboration with everybody involved. And what I just described, you know, fits very well with the idea of creating or renovating a building or building a public space, but it also relates very well to other modes of uh, uh, political, social, creative action. So for me, as a personal answer, that skill is at the core of uh, design education, whether it's uh, uh, design more broadly, or whether it's an architectural education. Um, in an, for you know, architectural education is also quite interesting because it is a you know a licensed and accredited right. uh, degree right. program. And so um, uh, you know, having just won the you know won the lottery of architectural leadership and had to lead my program through the <laughs> once every every um, uh, eight years accreditation process uh, at MIT. Uh, I can say that the uh, I, I can and, and will you know perhaps unexpectedly sing the praises of the National Architectural Accreditation Board, who have recently you know uh, to their great credit revised the accreditation guidelines to give schools more uh, leeway in thinking about what an accredited mm. degree means um, uh, today and moving towards you know a kind of um, I'd almost liken it to sort of performance-based zoning versus uh, <laughs> regulation. So, so to say that there's a set of outcomes of what students need to know, um, uh, but those outcomes are, are reasonably broad, and schools can get at it in the in the ways that they um, uh, can do best given their their local circumstances. So. Um, at some level, and versus a, uh, I, I don't think you have to be licensed to be a graphic designer. Nope. Or maybe nope. that, maybe nope. that would be a good idea. <laughs> what we see in the world, but um, uh, I think so. The relationship between that kind of licensure is also something that will right. always um, uh, define architectural education. But that licensure is particularly interesting because it. Uh, sort of behooves the program and the student to deal with a lot of realities, which it is certainly the tendency within the, um, within the academy and within particularly a classic, uh, a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of Bauhaus inspired modernist design mm-hmm. education, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, in which, you know, Albers and Gropius and, and right. a lot of influential figures that, that helped build um, design education in this country more broadly, um, we're really all about abstracting from the messy realities of of, of problems and abstra- abstracting right, to, right. to such a level that um, uh, you developed these fundamental skills in composition, say, um, uh, that you then brought to bear on, um, you know, the com- complex reality of the world after a crucial, you know, multi-year gestating right. period right. of a, a kind of lack of encounter with it. And I I think if that if that approach was was ever appropriate, it, it is not so much today when you know um, uh, uh, politically, uh, socially, and otherwise the 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 world is very present in the studio and and hopefully right. um, you know given the urgency of a lot of the issues we're dealing with, the studio also needs to be very present in the world, which is not to say that skills like composition and abstraction are not important, but I think we can be more self-conscious and deliberate, you know, in collaborating with their students and say, now we're going to do this. We're going to do something right. in a very abstract way to develop this muscle that then we're going to do uh, this other thing with um, uh, in a very deliberate way. In preparing for this and thinking about talking to you, I, I watched a lecture 
that you gave a couple of years ago. And you had this line in there where you said architecture is not so much a tool or profession of making things as it is a profession of media. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of thinking about architecture uh, as a profession of media and how mm-hmm. that maybe relates to these sort of questions that you're asking yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a mediated profession is how I would probably uh, 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 correct myself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the reasons, this goes back to your earlier question about, you know, what is an architectural education in this larger landscape of, of, uh, of design? It's, it's also related to the, the potted history of design itself that we were discussing at the outset, which is to say that at some point in the, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th century, given mm-hmm. the, the, um, enormous economic advances, um, uh, explosion in uh, uh, central and northern Italy. It became the practice for uh, the designers of buildings not to work on site, where they would, you know, draw things out often at full scale, and and it was still in some sense mediated, but to produce mm. kind of documents, contracts, which have come down to to us today as both blueprints and specifications, um, uh, to produce. Uh, the built environment. So the uh, and of course, you know, today if I as an architect go onto a building site uh, of a building for which I am the architect and um, attempt to you know pick up a pneumatic nail gun or something like that, I'll be quickly escorted from the um, from the process. So it has to be very clear that the the the, the architect is not producing the building. Firsthand, and of course, there was a lot of interesting. You know, at the the moment when architecture really, um, you know, my, my perspective uh, on, on on architecture's mediated discipline, I should add as a parenthesis, is also deeply influenced by my own experience of architectural education from the uh, you know mid '90s to uh, to early 2000s, which went from you know being um, you know, almost literally in a very anachronistic way, beginning with hand drawing and then going to all the way to animation in, you know, in a, in a, in a space of just a few years mm. and surrounded by this, you know, anxious penumbra of conversations about the hand versus the computer, which always seemed to me a little bit silly at the time. And I couldn't quite figure out why, but I think part of why is that, you know, the, the idea that one form of mediation is, yeah. is better than another, you know, on in shaping the building environment versus, say, just simply qualitatively different with its own, right. um, uh, right. with, with its own uh, inherent um, kind of advantages and disadvantages. You know, media comes from the, the Latin word for lens. And so, you know, any form of media uh, 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 provides greater clarity in the center, like a lens, but you know, distorts as, at, at its edges. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, to the extent that um, different form of media, you know, shape the built environment in different ways, I, I think the role of media in shaping the built environment through the work of architects is nevertheless fundamental. And so uh, understanding that there was a moment, again, as as digital representation was coming up where there were a whole uh, a set of architects who were very influential on those of my generation, like um, Hadid and Kulhas and Liebeskind, potentially even going back to Archigram, who are all working on a kind of project of how different modes of representation produced a different kind of inherent flavor to the built environment. So this is not my unique insight, quite the reverse. But then, you know, as as we have entered into a landscape of accelerating changes in media, I think this fundamental question of well, what reality do different forms of media create is a is a much larger question for our 
culture and society. And then it is also a question that one can and should, and in fact needs to address within the, um, uh, the space of the studio and design education. Because the one thing I can guarantee to a architecture student today is that the modes of media by which they are producing building will not be static. And therefore, some degree of critical thinking about how a specific kind of mediation, you know, produces a specific kind of outcome, collaboration, etc., is to me, I think, one of the most important tasks of, a, of an architectural education and, and potentially even a design education today, when you think also about how few uh, of us as designers actually touch the thing that we're making. This is a nice way to actually sort of shift from from education to your own work because you your the output of your work sort of spans scales and disciplines and 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 media too. You know, you're you're making books, you're making exhibitions, you are, you know, sort of making like software, I guess you could sort of say, working with code and and uh, and artifacts. You you do that independently, you do that with your with your studio modem with Catherine Mull. I'm I'm interested in sort of how you think about the relationship between sort of like the process and the output. You come from this architectural education that you're talking about. How does that influence the making of a book or the making of a piece of software or the making of an exhibition? Is there something, you know, can you sort of talk about your journey and the the move through these different outputs in your work? To, to me, you know, and then I, I, I would stress that much of the work that you're talking about is is collaborative. Um, uh, particularly with, with Catherine, my partner, and um, but also with others um, at, at MIT and elsewhere, the, the, what, what we do and what we think about is uh, moments and, and, and creative opportunities to highlight some of the issues that you, know, you and I have been talking about, Jarrett, for, for the last little while, um, as they come into the making of objects, landscapes, experiences uh, for the body. So uh, I, I would say one thread that connects all the work is that the threads are visible, which is to say that, that the, the kind of making um, of it and the, 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 the line between you know, making mediation and experience um, is, is always present because there's a, there's a, a, a subtle and, and hopefully not too overbearing pedagogical project to all of the works to say, ah, you think this is how this is made? Well, this can be made in this other way or this other kind of mechanism or way of thinking of it can, can do it in this way. So whether it's at a, an exhibit design, for example, my uh, partner, uh, Catherine and myself did with the photographer Catherine Wagner at the Mills Museum a few years ago, for example, the, the, uh, in that case, we were uh, looking at a particularly uh, famous uh, on auspicious gallery space at, at Mills College, where Sophie Kai and others had had um, uh, exhibited it early in their career, and the the but but literally kind of deconstructing mm. it and and taking it apart and and showing the the edges of the drywall of the gallery and its layers of of, uh, of paint etc. But then doing a set of insertions into it that. Uh, allowed you to see those um, the, the quality of that space in a new way and still reinforce and, and return it to the idea of a gallery, which is one of the most highly uh, scripted and mediated uh, architectural environments we can think of. You studied um, in undergrad and in graduate school architecture. You worked from from what I can gather in sort of architectural studios. You were, you were at Hopkins Architecture in the 90s and Diller's Confidio and Renfro in 
late 90s, I guess. And I'm wondering if you could talk, I hope this question isn't too reductive, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of working in the architecture studio, that sort of early part of your career. How did you... <laughs> mm, how did you make a move or how did you shift from that type of practice to one where you are, you know, hacking typewriters with Arduinos to make, you know, 40 foot maps? Where did that interest come from to sort of expand what you could do or shift what you could do? And then how did you start to sort of, um, you know, move from one practice to the other? I mean, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, no, I worked for, I, I'd say three um, experiences in practice were, were deeply influential. Um, uh, my first job in London was actually at a um, uh, what was then basically the London office of um, uh, Davis Birdie Bond, and working with uh, you know architects like um, Max Bond earlier in my career were very influential on how I saw architecture as a larger uh, social, but also you know design practice. And then I'd, I'd say then I worked you know. Um, relatively briefly, but very influentially for um, Michael and Patty Hopkins. Um, uh, and uh, in a way that that um, I, I really um, had a lot to do with the making of objects, actually, that I probably shouldn't reveal the, the gossip, but in the internal slang of the firm, you know, Bracken House, which was a famous and influential Michael, Michael Hopkins building, we all called it, you know, Bracket House, because it was just everything was attached to everything else in this way that, that was kind of... Um, this massively and beautifully superfluous, but but you know um, really lent into in the kind of classic high tech way the the logic of attachment uh, and assembly really involved you know treating all of those those buildings like you know full scale models and prototypes of like really thinking about just how everything was assembled as a as a mode of, of, of as a way to create an architectural language. Um, and that was a very interesting lesson too about mediation, because um, you know one of the things that spoiled me for a lot of later experiences was it was a very very well run office. You had to ask a partner for permission if you were going to stay later than seven p.m. The implication being that if you were staying later than seven p.m., you were you know the work was out of control, right? Um, and and wow. you were on top of it. And then you know the other like beautiful design. So the office itself is a design project, which is something that always stayed with me. Um, uh, for example, the I don't know if it was it's true now, but then the unusually in the late '90s, early 2000s, you know, there was only um, black and white printing. Mm -hmm. Just you just didn't do anything in color um, uh, because it just reduced the number of choices and the number of distractions. You know, in terms of uh, how you made drawings, mm -hmm. you know, everything was you know templated, etc. So I, I really, really um, learned a lot from that experience and was was very fortunate to work um, particularly closely with. Uh, uh, with Patty Hopkins, who is a you know brilliant, brilliant architect, um, and then um, uh, of course along with her husband, but she she, she doesn't um, always get equal billing. I and then I moved to I had um, uh, Liz Diller as a as a teacher and then mentor and then you know worked in the office actually you know, on and off late 90s, early 2000s, probably about four or five years total in span. And then, um, you know, that also was deeply influential at the time. You know, I was working on things that ranged very precisely given the pivot point in that the practice was in at the time from installations in museums, 
theatrical performances. Um, mm. uh, I'd also done set design as an undergraduate, so it was you know oh, kind of logical. Okay. And then you know the beginnings of, of buildings, projects like the Brasserie and the Blur Building, beginning of the ICA, things like that that were in the office at the time. So it was a it was a fascinating. Um, if you know, slightly exhausting moment <laughs> in, in terms of the 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 practice, and um, you know, I le- I learned an enormous amount of it. But I, I I think what I learned in particular was that you know the 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 intersection between ideas and and making was where I wanted to be. But then you know, I was also interested in how I could explore ideas that were you know my own um uh even if it involved um you know being in a, a slightly less stratospheric trajectory um that, that right. i was you know particularly interested in in um in figuring out how i could do that and you know to their credit liz and rick were very sympathetic to that as well and uh but but you know fate intervened i was offered a um i, I got a, a small fellowship at the American Academy that was given at the time by the Van Allen Institute. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a um, called the Dinkaloo Fellowship, and you know changed the whole trajectory of my career because out of you know in a break from that fellowship, I was back in New York, and the late great wonderful Kevin Lippert, publisher of Princeton mm-hmm. Architectural Press, you know um, for whom I'd done a lot of freelance work in the. Um, at that same time, actually doing like backend web web programming, <laughs> which is a whole other whole other story. At the last minute, someone dropped out of a teaching fellowship at the University of Virginia, and the dean at the time, the incredible Karen Van Langen, was looking for someone, and and um, I, I got that opportunity to have uh, an instrumental opportunity for to spend initially a year, um, ultimately ended up a couple of years on and off. Um, uh, um, commuting to teach at, at the University of Virginia, which was an amazing place, uh, particularly at the time. Um, uh, you know, just to give you one example, I shared a, you know, a small, aggressively unrenovated office with uh, Maurice Cox, who just sat down as the, um, uh, as the you know, planning director for the city of Chicago. Um, uh, uh, before that, Detroit is a you know, remarkable human being. Um, the, there were a whole set of other very influential people there at the time. Many in landscape are still there, like um, Beth Meyer mm-hmm. and Julie Bargman. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, on the on the architecture side, Maurice, um, Craig Barton, mm-hmm. um, uh, Ken Schwartz, and Judy Kennard. That that the faculty, the the architecture faculty, kind of um, rolled over and remade itself after I after I left. But I think it was um, it was a particularly interesting time because a lot of um, you know, what have become very common agendas in um, uh, architectural practice since around uh, ecology, changing landscapes, thinking through time and society, thinking, you know, quite aggressively about who, who design is for, who it's not for, um, thinking about race and architecture. Mm. Um, these were all things that I was um, enormously fortunate to be exposed to, you know, relatively early in my career as a result and, and were deeply, deeply influential. Um, uh, and then at the same time, I was beginning to develop my own intellectual projects, in particular, the on spacesuits, yep. um, uh, uh, which is really a larger meditation on design and complexity um, in the guise of, a, of, a, of, a, of an architectural history of the one object that also, you know, shows the threads of its making in terms of its, like, um, deliberate and obsessive structure and, and, and all the rest. So that was how I, I kind of got launched and then um, was on the verge of going back into practice because I really enjoy making things and I enjoy working with clients and teams. But then um, again, uh, was very, very lucky to be part of a tenure track search process at the University of California, Berkeley, that resulted in an offer uh, and a hire to uh, to go there where I was for a, for a very 
um, you know, professionally productive 15 years. You know, as we head to the end, I do want to talk about Spacesuit a little bit um, since, yeah. since you brought it up. And that's when I first became familiar with your work. And and I, I know we don't have too much time left, and so I'm not going to ask you to sort of tell the whole story. But what I think is interesting about that project, and you, you sort of just mentioned it, is that... Um, you know, this is a book that is about uh, sort of the history of the spacesuit, why it is a sort of soft and pillowy structure with 21 layers as opposed to a, you know, sort of firm, hard structure that was also in development. But what's interesting to me about the book is that it is about that, but it is also about architecture. It's about systems. It's about fashion. It's about politics. It's about technology. You've you've described it as the conflict between the systems engineering approach on one hand and the logic of the body and the logic of cities on the other. I'm wondering sort of how you how you realized that this single object could be a lens through which you could explore all of these other things that you were interested in, architecture, systems, fashion, sort of how did how did you sort of come to look at this object as, as something that could illuminate all these other things? Well, I, I think the, you know, the sort of embarrassing, but, you know, humbly true resources that anything can be used to explore everything mm, right. <laughs> it's the nature of the world that that um you know we you know we we didn't um get to talk about i realized the pathologies of the architecture profession which maybe is the best but they're they're manifold but one of the pathologies of the university is to organize things that that exist out in the world you know beautifully interconnected mm. is to is to tear them all asunder and and put them in uh different parts that we call disciplines or departments, etc. And so one of the, uh, there's, there's very good reasons to do this. Uh, even in our own um, Department of Architecture at MIT, there's different discipline groups in history and, and computation and, and uh, building technology and all the rest. There, there's good reason to, to separate these things too, because it lets you go deep into individual um, subdisciplines or areas in, in ways that are, you know, potentially quite productive. But the, but the great pathology of is it, is it, is it, fails to to um, uh, let you grasp um, at uh, a point which I think is deeply important for uh, the making of buildings and cities, which is the interconnectedness of everything. So I, I won't take any particular credit for the actual object, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the ability to do that because um, uh, because it is in the nature of all things, but is too often missed by by I'd say you know the 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 ideas of expertise that we've come to accept for, for good reasons in other ways. That said, that book has its origins in, in two um, classes I took from two remarkable people in sequence when I was in graduate school. The first was a class from uh, Alessandro Ponte on uh, the desert, which has remained a preoccupation um, for um, you know, the, the reasons that Rainer Banham in his great book on the desert laid out, which is that you know, when in an environment where nothing ostensibly exists, uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be desert. Um, right. uh, everything is possible, or anything is possible. And, and uh, Banham also says later in that book that we learn, you know, the most about architecture um, at, at, its, at its extremes or at its edges. Um, and so that that really, really stayed with me as a, um, uh, uh, particularly as the circumstances that we're in globally, you know, edge uh -huh. towards greater extremes. I think it's a particularly important point. And then, um, so I didn't write about spacesuits for that seminar. I actually wrote about the photographer, Timothy O'Sullivan, which is a whole other story. But, but then the next semester, um, uh, I was in a class from Georges Tissot on uh, domestic space, 
And I, I tried to think through what the very edge of domestic space was or what domestic mm. space was in the desert and this, this kind of line between intimacy and, uh, uh, and, and the world, which teaches us a lot about our own fragility, but also the nature of architecture itself. Right. And uh, started looking into the story of the, of the spacesuit and, and uh, got so confused by all the different layers and, and connections in the story that I, I literally, for the end of that um, academic semester, I didn't hand in a single paper. I handed in 21 one-page papers on different topics uh, okay. that, all, that all related to it. And then yeah. um, because of other work that related to my graduate thesis, um, you know, to make a long story short, I was uh, 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 spending time um, only a year or two later, um, or a couple of years later, I suppose, when after I'd started um, teaching at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, and kind of pulled this um, project out as a way to think more broadly about the relationship in particular between um, complexity, evolution, and design, which was what I was attempting to think about there. And it seemed like a, a good enough vessel and, and one of, in fact, the lessons of evolution for design and, and um, yeah. indeed for design itself is that you know the repurposing or, or remaking is is a very key um, uh, action in a design process. And so I, I sort of repurposed that structure of the, of the, um, of the term paper uh, uh, and broadened it, you know, and, you know, yeah, yeah. nine years later, the book was published. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there's a lot in between, but, um, but that's the fundamental story. I love that you brought up this this 21 layers to these 21 essays that you submitted yeah. because what really struck me about this book is that how how much this book was was designed also the fact that you sort of mirrored the 21 layers of the spacesuit to write these 21 layered essays and I'm wondering if you could just talk about how you think about writing as a type of design project, sort of how you how you sort of took this object and use that to help structure the writing of mm -hmm. itself. Um, can you talk to me just a little bit about, you know, sort of developing that structure and, and thinking about the writing almost as a design process? Well, so this is interesting. So, so in the as a kind of footnote, when I started teaching one of the mo most enjoyable classes I've ever um, uh, taught, which uh, I taught for about a decade, which was the introduction to design for freshman majors in architecture, landscape, mm -hmm. urban studies, and sustainable design at Berkeley, um, uh, so-called environmental design one. Um, it was called. I did a lot of work. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, in my own way of what on uh, at, at, in terms of the, what the state of the art was at the time on what the actual like cognitive mechanisms of design were that sort of neurological reality of people <laughs> doing design work which was super interesting and and um, I could geek out on that for a while but but basically um, it ends up being you know design fundamentally is about repurposing and reassembly of, of, of things and experience often conscious, but but quite often sub happening at a subconscious level in the brain. And that yeah. was very, influence, very influential on my modes of teaching design, both um, uh, at, at that introductory level, but in fact, at, at, at every level. I think what I did with the, the, the book, and this relates to, uh, you know, so the book as a, as a structure, 
had these 21 layers, which were not the same topics as the 21 papers that I submitted in <laughs> the late 90s, but some of them were, you know, but but not 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 that. <laughs> but they kind right, of, right. Uh, uh, there, there was a sort of sorting and sifting process to say, if you were to take 21 things and try and tell the story in the way that telling it in 21 different ways could get you, what would you do? And so that was a very, mm. you know, the, the, the structure of it was very important because it's not a, a linear object and, and it's not, uh, there's not a single arc through it that is, it is very uh, quintessential and fundamental quality. And therefore the idea of telling, you know, trying to pretend that there was a linear synthetic argument, it was particularly absurd in that, in that, right, uh, in right. that context. But then um, of course, if you, uh, if you look at the book within each, um, uh, it, it, it is, you know, like any living thing in some sense recursive because within yeah. each, uh, chapter, um, it's not written as a linear narrative either. It's written as a set of uh, three to four paragraph segments on different topics that that follow each other like beads on a thread in a way that you can follow, but but quite often, um, uh, you know, not by continuing the same linear narrative, but by leaping about to discover connections between things at that kind of micro level as well. And so that that was a design. You know that 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 is designing that manuscript intellectually was a design problem, um, yeah. and then of course writing. Um, you know, I, I experience. Uh, it may be that all your listeners have a different experience, but I experience writing and and uh, uh, and design as uh, you know uniquely related activities yep. because they all involve yep. the, a process of you know. St- ever so slightly, you know, diminishing frustration and exasperation. <laughs> what That's a good way doing, to put it. Yeah. Um, that, that you have to, you know, simply work through and, and develop techniques to manage. And so, you know, uh, uh, or at least that's my experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, Sounds uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, figuring out what precisely something wants to be is, um, is, is deeply connected um, in my experience to figuring precisely uh, what it is um, uh, something wants to say. I really like the way you articulated that. Um, there's so much that I could talk with you about. I feel like we could continue this conversation for another hour or two easily, um, but I know you have to go. So I'm going to ask you uh, the last question that I used to end all of these. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Oh, I'm reading a novel by um, uh, Benjamin Labatou. Uh, I don't know. Oh. Uh, uh, about uh, John von Neumann, which is yeah. uh, a really beautifully designed book in this way that the um, uh, that we're talking about, which is uh, uh, about um, uh, John von Neumann, born Janus von Neumann in Hungary, and his kind of contributions um, uh, to uh, early computing, but really about the, uh, I'm not all the way through, but it seems at a very fundamental level to be uh, uh, about the relationship between the mind and and what we know um, uh, and and what we make. Um, So uh, uh, I'm I'm not always reading something so uh, apt. Sometimes I try and help myself by, you know, reading management articles about, you know, academic (laughs) administration, because that is a... uh, design problem that I haven't quite fully wrapped my head around. But um, but but as it is, uh, you catch me reading something that is uh, uh, not completely embarrassing nor um, uh, completely irrelevant to what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, I read his short story collection, which whose mm-hmm. name I'm forgetting now, um, which I really liked, but I haven't read the novel yet. And honestly, if you if you were reading about management, 
we talk about administration a lot on the mm-hmm. show too. So it wouldn't have been, <laughs> been off topic. Uh, no, 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 it's true. I think, you know, it's the hilarious, I, th- I guess you, you speak to have, have spoken to academic, you know, ad, mm-hmm. uh, leadership as it were before, but I think, um, you know, it, it is a very interesting design experience, but one that, you know, we are only prepared for in the most abstract sense before we do it. Yes, that is a that is a great way to wrap this up. This was such a such a joy to talk to you. I'm a longtime admirer of your work and to hear how you sort of think about these things was was great. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a total pleasure. That was my conversation with Nicholas DiMancio. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.